0: Father, we thank you for the privilege of again being able to gather together today and study your word. As always, our prayer today is that we would grow in our knowledge of who you are, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would grow in our desire to worship you. We recognize that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and we pray that it would penetrate today, even dividing soul and spirit, joy and marrow, as the scripture says that it would penetrate to the very core of who we are, that we would be reminded from this passage of your great love for us. And in turn, we'd be inspired to show that love to other people. So Father, be gracious to us in this moment. Help us to hear your voice. We want nothing more today than to hear from you. And so we're praying that's exactly what would happen. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I don't know why this is the case, but there are a few things in life that bother me more than losing something. And I don't mean losing a game, although that does bother me some too, but I mean losing an item. I found that I can remember items that I've lost from years and years ago and it still bothers me. In fact, I remember about 10 years ago, I was working some odd job doing some manual labor and I left my hat at this place and when I went back to get it, it was gone. And I will say this, that even today, it still bothers me. That's my favorite hat. I couldn't find it anywhere since... I've looked all over, I don't know where it is, and it still bothers me even 10 years from now. Last year, I was playing basketball, and I I had the long sleeve shirt on uh, over the top of my short sleeve shirt. I took it off, I left it there, I went back the next week, and it was gone. Still drives me crazy a year later. I remember one time I worked at UPS, and I left a Nalgene water bottle, which probably cost like $8, right? It couldn't cost much more than that. But even to this day, I still wonder, where did I leave it? I can't believe that I left it at work. It just drives me crazy. So with that as the background, you might imagine how upset I was or how concerned I was when I thought that Tani and I had lost $1,500. And just in case you're wondering, this is not a gambling story. We almost literally lost $1,500. Now to fully appreciate this story, let me give you a little bit of background. Okay, so we were uh, recently married, and at the time we had almost zero money to our name. I I was working in campus ministry. I was probably making somewhere in the 20s. Uh, $20,000 a year or so. Tanya was a full-time student. She took about 21 credit hours, uh, and so she had no time to work. So we just had very little money. Now, by God's grace, uh, we were living in married student housing, which I think is a two-bedroom apartment. I think it costs around $300 a month, which is just insane, especially now that I live in New York. I think, how did we ever have a two-bedroom apartment for $300 a month? That's crazy. I think our grocery, we had a budget at the time. I think our grocery budget, Tanya and I were talking this week, we can't remember if it was, it was certainly under 150 but it might have been around $100 for the month. I mean, it was just crazy, right? We were, we were eating ramen noodles, we were eating spaghetti without any meat, just the sauce, lots and lots of cereal, lots of cereal. Our, our menu was not very diverse, it was certainly on the low end of the budget. We just didn't have a lot of money. I don't know that you could say we were poor, but I think you could probably see poor from where we were living, all right? We didn't have a whole lot of money. And so perhaps because of that, because of the way we structured my, uh, the taxes being taken out of my check, we got a sizable tax refund that year. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but I think it was around $1,500. Now, $1,500, no matter who you are, that's a lot of money, okay? But when you are making the amount that we were, that was a huge, huge amount of money. Now, for some reason, we didn't take it to the bank right away, which was mistake number one, okay? Uh... I, I don't know why we didn't take it, but there was a lag between the time when we got the check and the time we thought we would take it to the bank. And so the way we had our system set up at the time is we would take our checks or our bills and we would put them in this basket. And so I don't know if it ever made it to the basket or not, but when I went to the basket to find the check, it was gone. Now, at first I wasn't too worried, right? I mean, of course you put mail around the house, and so I looked in all the normal spots. And after about 10 or 15 minutes of, of looking, I was starting to get a little bit worried. And that little worry started to turn into big worry. Now as both Tani and I are searching all over the house, and we are looking everywhere, right? There is not a chair. There is not a paper. There is not a blanket that is not left unturned in the search for this check. Now, Maybe some of you say, well, maybe you could just replace it. I don't know if that's the case, but I'll tell you this. I was under the impression we could not replace it. And so to say that we were panicking would probably be an understatement, right? We were we were at our wits' end. We were not in a state of being frantic. We were in a state of desperation. And so after hours of looking, we decided there's only one place left in the house that it could possibly be. We'd searched every other place. And so in one last-ditch effort, we thought the only place we have not yet checked is the trash but why would it be in the trash right no one would ever think it would be in the trash so we thought this is not going to work so uh, you know I I got in the trash and sure enough it was gooey it was messy it was soggy it was disgusting and at the very bottom of the trash sure enough there was our $1,500 tax refund check it was gross it was nasty but it was still legible that was a moment of great joy I can tell you the relief that we felt in that moment now Uh, For the sake of just finishing the story, I will say this. There is still, this is one of the great mysteries of our marriage as to how that check got in the trash. I have my theories, Tanya has hers, and I'm sure that the truth is somewhere in the middle. But whatever the reason was, however it got there, there was untold joy when we discovered that check. I'm guessing that maybe even if you've never done anything as crazy or as dumb as throwing away a $1,500 check, you can at least relate to the feeling of finding something that has been lost. Maybe you've never lost anything that valuable. Maybe you've lost something more valuable. Maybe there was a period of time where you were at the zoo or the mall and your kids were missing for a minute or two. And then when you found them, there was this joy. But regardless of what your experience is on, on finding lost things, I would say this. I would guess that every person in this room has some connection to the joy of finding a lost item. I think that's actually why Jesus tells these parables, because he knows that the audience that he was teaching could relate to the joy of finding a lost item. And in fact, I think we can also. So let's read here again just two parables. They're so similar in nature that I think they're worth grouping together. So again, Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Let me remind you, this is the Word of God. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribe grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she is found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Now again, as we've said so often here in our series in the parables, the context of this parable really matters. And in this case, I would actually argue that the context goes back to chapter 14. I want to look at the last two verses of chapter 14 of Luke. Verse 34 says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? And then verse 35 says, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. And here's the key phrase, all right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus has said this repeatedly in in the series on the parables. This is something he often says when he teaches in parables. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now check out what happens in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So Jesus is saying, let those who have ears to hear, hear. And who is it that's hearing him? It's the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, this is actually infuriating to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. They are troubled that it's the tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Jesus. That it's the tax collectors and sinners who are hearing what Jesus has to say. And that's why we read what we do in verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, again, I think it's really easy for us to read this story backwards. We know the ending We know where Jesus is going with this, and so it's easy for us to be critical of the Pharisees and the scribes. But the fact of the matter is that in this culture, I'm sure there were many people, not just the Pharisees and the scribes, who were concerned that Jesus was associating with the tax collectors and the sinners. As we said a few weeks ago when we talked about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, tax collectors were known to be dishonest, cheating, frauds. In fact, this is how they were known in the culture. No one liked the tax collectors the sinners that we're talking about here, these are serious sinners, the prostitutes of the world. And so it's safe to say that it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes that were concerned, although they seem to be the primary ones concerned with this, but it's not just them that were concerned that Jesus is associating with tax collectors and sinners. As commentator Leon Morris points out, in this society, religious people wouldn't usually associate with sinners even to teach them the law. Right? So, The religious people of this culture wouldn't even come near sinners or tax collectors to teach them about the law, about the Old Testament, let alone to eat with them. And yet here's Jesus welcoming sinners and associating with them. Many religious people were under the assumption that if you associated with a tax collector or sinner, just by the fact that you're associating with them, you would become contaminated or impure. And yet here's Jesus welcoming them and eating with them. And the religious leaders do not like this, which is why they criticize Jesus. Now, this criticism is not unique to Luke chapter 15. In fact, if you've read the Gospels, you know that this is a criticism that is commonly made of Jesus, that he associates with sinners and tax collectors. In Matthew 11:19, 19, we're told that Jesus was labeled as a glutton and a drunkard because he associated with tax collectors and sinners. In Matthew 9 and in Mark 2, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 19, the crowd grumbles when Jesus goes to eat with the tax collector. In this case, it's Zacchaeus. So let's be clear here. the The criticism that is aimed at Jesus in Luke 15 is not unique to Luke 15. And the question that everyone's wondering is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's in response to that criticism And in response to that line of questioning, that Jesus then tells these two parables. That's the context, and it's really important to keep in mind. Now, Actually, I would argue the third parable in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, also is connected to this idea as well. In fact, later on in this series, we'll come back to the parable of the prodigal son. But it's fair to say that these two parables in particular, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, are directed to this question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think there's two main things we want to say from this passage. One is this, that God loves sinners and goes to great lengths to pursue them. Again, keep in mind, I think this is the purpose of the parables, to address the question, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he associate with them? And clearly, Jesus' answer to that question is because God wants to see sinners rescued. In both of these parables, the point is that the one who's lost something goes after it because he sees it to be of high value. In fact, look at the parable of the lost sheep, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now a shepherd's job, as I'm sure you know, is to watch sheep. And when one of the sheep goes missing, he looks for it. Now, maybe you're familiar with sheep. Maybe you have a a vast knowledge of sheep history. I'm not sure. But sheep are not the most intelligent animals. In fact, they're pretty helpless and they're pretty pitiful, to be honest. They're easily lost. They're easily confused. They're not very agile. They fall on their backs. They can't even get up onto their own feet. And to be honest, they're just plain dumb. So a shepherd cannot assume that a sheep will find its way back to the flock. This is not like a dog that will find its way home. A sheep that is lost will stay lost. And so if a shepherd wants that sheep to be safe, he must go and retrieve it. He must go and rescue it. Now there's one part of this parable that's always bothered me. And that is, why would he leave the 99 by themselves to go rescue the one? Weren't the 99 in danger? If that's you, maybe, maybe you're the one who's always been bothered by that also. I think it's probably good for you to know that the way that shepherds worked in this time is they would almost never leave their sheep by themselves. And so likely he has an assistant here, or maybe he asked another shepherd to watch his flock. But if you're bothered by the 99 being left alone, I don't think that's actually what's happening here. Jesus probably assumes, uh, and I think it's fair to say, that probably his audience knew more about shepherding than we do. And he assumed that his audience would know that someone else is watching the 99. So if that's bothered you over the years like it has me, just let it go. It's okay. Someone's watching the 99 sheep. The point is that the shepherd goes and searches for the lost sheep. No matter how hard it is, no matter how many thorns and thistles he has to work his way through, no matter how difficult the terrain is, he goes and he finds the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he puts it on his back. Now, this wouldn't have been easy either. A sheep might weigh, or, a sheep might weigh around 100 pounds. So this is, this is not going to be easy, but he does it gladly. Why? Because the sheep is of great value to him. And this is the point, that he goes and rescues the sheep because he values it. Now, it's actually the same point of the next parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, houses in this area at this time were not very well lit. In fact, a house, especially for those who didn't have a lot of wealth, might have one very small window or perhaps no windows at all. They were really dark. The floors were usually made out of dirt or sometimes reeds. And so if you lost the coin, it was going to be really difficult to find it. One commentator says that to find a coin in this situation would be like finding a needle in a haystack. I don't know if it's actually that difficult, but it is hard, right? Because it's dark, the floor is dirty, it's covered with stuff. But again, the point is that the woman does everything she can. She lights the lamp, she sweeps the floor, and she looks for the coin. Why? Because she values it. It's the same story with the lost sheep. The shepherd valued the sheep. The woman values the coin. And the point of both of these parables, I think, is simply this, that this is what the love of God is like, that he seeks out and he rescues the lost because he values them. I don't think it's an accident, actually, that he chooses the two objects that he does, especially the first object. In the Old Testament, there is a rich history of, with shepherds and sheep relating to God. In fact, I want to show you two of them here. So the book of Ezekiel, if you want to turn back to the left, if you find your way to Psalms, then you just need to go to the right a little bit. past Proverbs, and eventually you'll run to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. This is a a great prophecy from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. Okay, so I, I want you to keep this in mind as we think about what Jesus is saying here in Luke 15 ezekiel 34 starting in verse 11 for thus says the lord god behold i i myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered so will i seek out my sheep and i will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so this passage here, particularly verse 16, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured. Have no doubt that his audience, the Pharisees and scribes would have been familiar with this passage. And so when Jesus is talking about the shepherd seeking the sheep, they know that he's talking about God. Let me show you one other passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. So just back to your left a little bit from Ezekiel, Isaiah 53, the famous messianic passage, verse six says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Isaiah is clear that all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, all of us are like the lost sheep. Now, the fact of the matter, again, is this, that sheep are dumb and helpless. Now, maybe that hurts your self-esteem to know that we're all like the sheep. But I think it's intentional that Jesus is using this because sheep cannot find their way back and neither can we. I think that's why Jesus uses this analogy. I think he uses it in part because of the rich Old Testament history, but also to communicate to us that we are helpless, that we are the lost sheep, that we have gone astray and that he is the one who must search us out and find us and rescue us. Listen, the focus in this parable is clearly not on the sheep and how the sheep was clever in finding its way back to the flock. No, no, the focus in this passage is on the shepherd and the shepherd rescuing the sheep. The shepherd's initiative to go and rescue the lost. And then he drives home that point Jesus does even further with the parable of the lost coin. Here's the thing you could say about sheep. Yes, they're dumb. Yes, they're helpless. But they do make noise, right? They do bah. I, I, I shouldn't do that noise. That would be weird. They make a, a sheep noise, right? They bah. <coughs> My wife is really good at that noise. Ah, never mind. There's a game we play, Sellers of Catane, where she likes to bah a lot. And I'm really getting off topic. So let's get back to the sheep at hand here, okay? All right, so sheep, yes, they're dumb, they're helpless, but they do make noises. And so you might think to yourself, well, you know, maybe the sheep helped out. Right? Maybe the sheep helped the shepherd to discover it. Well, if that's what you're thinking, Jesus removes all doubt with the parable of the lost coin. The coin does nothing to be found. Right? The coin can do nothing. A coin cannot cry out. The coin cannot move towards the shepherd's voice. A coin is not alive. It is the woman who finds the coin, and not vice versa. And that is the point in both of these parables. The focus is on the shepherd who searches for the sheep and the woman who searches for the coin. And the obvious lesson is this, that this is what the love of God is like. He pursues and he rescues sinners. And he does this by sending his son. The way he pursued us was by sending his son, Jesus, who lived the life that we could not live. Our sin had separated us from God, and there was nothing we could do to find our way back to his fold. But He sent His Son to rescue us. His Son lived the life we could not live. His Son took the punishment for our sin. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus says in Luke 19. Jesus says that He came to rescue or to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. In the same way that a sheep cannot find its way back to the flock, or in the same way that a coin cannot find its way into your pocket, we cannot rescue ourselves. Our sin has separated us from God. We are too far gone. And that's why God had to send his son. And in fact, Romans 5, again, if you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can just listen it's to the right of Luke. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8 through 8 says this. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a, rich, a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or to say it another way, while we were still lost, he came to rescue us. He died to rescue us. This is what the love of God is like. That he seeks out and he rescues sinners. He goes to great lengths to pursue them. And we see that in the fact that he would send his son and his son would take the punishment for our sin. If you've ever wondered how far will God go to rescue us, look no further than the cross where Jesus took the punishment for our sin and three days later rose from the dead. And so that is one great and fantastic truth from this passage, that God delights in and rescues sinners. Now here's the other great thing I think we can see in this passage that there is great joy for God in rescuing sinners. It's not just that He seeks after and He rescues sinners, but He delights in rescuing sinners. In fact, look at verses 6 and 7 here of Luke 15. Verse 6. And when He comes home, He calls together His friends and His neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with Me, for I have found My sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in Heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now let me... me pause just for a second there's quite a bit of debate about what is this 99 people who have no need of repentance right jesus says there's one sinner who repents and there's more joy over that person than the 99 who have no need of repentance there's kind of two schools of thought on this one would be that jesus is using a rhetorical device here that he's being sarcastic he's saying there's actually no one who doesn't need to repent and in that way he's trying to provoke or challenge the way the pharisees are thinking he's thinking The Pharisees assume that they're good. And he's saying, well, yeah, these ones who think they have no need of repentance. The other school of thought is that he's referring to those who are already in the fold of God. And therefore, there's more rejoicing at the lost one because there's no change in status for the other 99. I tend to lean towards the first. I think Jesus is using a tongue-in-cheek thing here to get at the Pharisees and say, there's actually no one who doesn't need to repent. He's being sarcastic, right? He's trying to challenge the Pharisees. But regardless of how you take the 99 righteous, the clear point of verse 7 is that God rejoices. And in heaven, there is rejoicing over a sinner who repents. It's the same thing in the next parable, verse 9. And when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the point, right? That he has joy, that he rejoices when sinners repent. I think this is a really important truth for us today, and here's why. We tend to emphasize, and rightfully so, that there is joy for us in pursuing Christ. You may remember in the parable of the hidden treasure, Jesus says that um, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field, and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can get that treasure. We said this is what it's like to pursue Jesus. It's this overwhelming joy. It's a joy. And so we keep saying over and over that there is a joy that is unmatched when we pursue Christ. In fact, if you were to go back and listen to all of the sermons on the parables, I would guess that in almost every week I've said there is joy in pursuing Jesus. And I think it's right for us to emphasize that. But there is another side to the equation here. Yes, there is joy for us in pursuing Christ but there is also joy for God in pursuing us. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I think this is something we need to note and something we need to appreciate. Our relationship with God is not one of one-way joy. It's not just joy for us, but he rejoices in us too. And I think that makes a difference. I think it makes a difference. Listen, it's one thing in marriage if I were to say, I take great joy that I'm married to Tanya. But it's another if she says the same thing, right? It's great that I find joy, but it's even better if she finds joy also. Same thing is true of parenting. It's great. I would imagine if you're a parent, you take joy in your kids. I hope you do. But when your kids come to you and say, oh, I love that you're my daddy, or I love that you're my mommy, or you're the best daddy, or the best mommy, that is a fantastic feeling, right? Teenagers, you should practice saying that to your parents. They would love it if you would say that to them. Oh, you're a great dad. I love you. But listen, there's joy when it goes both ways. It makes a difference relationally. In the same way, I think it makes a difference for us to know that not only is there joy for us in pursuing Christ, but that God delights in pursuing us. He rejoices in our salvation. Listen, God didn't just send his son because he felt like he had to, Jesus didn't just become Savior because he kind of felt like that was his job description. No, God rescued us. Jesus came out of joy. We're told that Jesus willingly laid down his life for the joy that was set before him. Yes, he did this for God's glory, but he delighted in rescuing us also. We're told here in Luke 15 that there's a great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. That is an amazing picture. Think about the time when you came to know Christ if you're a Christian think about the fact that at that moment there was a great rejoicing in heaven. And so I think these two truths go hand in hand, that God loves and pursues lost sinners and he rejoices when he rescues them. And from these truths then I think there's two action points that we can say from this passage. All right, so two action points. One is this, that we should pause and reflect on God's great love. Listen, I know that in the parable series, there have been lots of really challenging things that Jesus has said. Right? He's challenged our view of money. He's challenged our view of what it means to love people. He's challenged our view of what it means to follow him. So sometimes when he says things, it's really, really convicting. And that's good. We need to be convicted. But it's also good when there's encouraging things. And listen, this is really encouraging. That God pursues after lost sinners and he rejoices when they are rescued. Listen, if you're not a believer and you're here today, I would think that this would be encouraging to you. That God pursues lost sinners. The Bible is clear that all of us are separated from God in our sin. But if you're not a believer, you can take comfort in the fact that he pursues lost sinners. In fact, I would argue the fact you are here today is evidence of his pursuit of you. He loves you enough to direct your path so that you could hear about the hope that is found in his son, Jesus Christ. The fact that you are here today is evidence of his pursuit. And my prayer for you is that you would realize your sin and turn to Christ. For some of you who are younger, who are still living with your parents, the fact that you've grown up in a home where your parents bring you to church, where hopefully they tell you about Jesus, this is evidence of God's pursuit of you. And if you repent of your sins today and trust Christ, there will be rejoicing. If you're a believer, I would think this would be encouraging also. He went in search for you when you were lost. He brought you back on his shoulders. He pursued you. He chose to rescue you because he delights in you. When when you turn from your sin, there was great rejoicing in heaven. Listen, I, I know that there are bad things that can happen here on earth. In fact, I know that for some of you today, there are really hard things that you're going through. And when that happens, sometimes there's a tendency to think that God is cold and distant. But brothers and sisters in Christ, nothing could be further from the truth. And this passage reminds us of this, that God delights in us. He saw us when we were strangers. The hymn that we sang just a little bit ago, Come Thou Fount. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. This is a truth that should bring us great joy, that he sought us out, that he rescued us with his blood, that he interposed his precious blood, that he rejoices over us. I think sometimes we think that God just tolerates us. Maybe you've been on an airplane before and you're sitting next to a baby that's crying. And in that moment, assuming that you're not the person who yells at everyone and asks for a seat change, you tolerate the fact that the baby's crying next to you. You just tolerate it. What else can you do? It's not ideal, but here you are. So you tolerate it. I think sometimes we kind of think that God looks at us and feels that way. He tolerates us. He's like, it's not ideal, but you know what can we do? No, I don't think that's the case at all. It's not that He puts up with us. No, He rejoices in us. He delights in the fact that we are following Him. He rejoices in our salvation. There's a difference between the parent who hears their newborn cry for the first time and the neutral bystander who hears a baby crying on the airplane. There's a difference, right? And I think that when God hears us, it's like the first situation. He delights in us. He rejoices in us. And if you get that, I think a few things will change. I think your security in Christ will become more sure. Your identity will become more confident, knowing that he approves of you. It won't matter as much what your boss says, It won't matter as much what your neighbors think of you. It won't matter what the world around you thinks about you because you know that God delights in you. He rejoices in the fact that you are a part of the fold of God. And that gives you confidence to live for him. I'll say this. I think there's a lot of motivation in knowing that God loves us. Think about this. If you think back on your life to the bosses or teachers that you've had, which are you more likely to? to enjoy working for, and to be motivated to work for? The boss or teacher who hates you? The boss or teacher who tolerates you? Or the boss or teacher who delights in you and cares about you? Well, it's always the last, right? So if we understand that God delights in us, I would think that this would give us all the motivation in the world to live for him. In fact, that leads to the last action point from this passage. I think that we should strive then, in light of everything that he's done, in light of the love he has for us, we should strive to reflect this love to the world around us. Here's the thing. If God loves sinners and pursues them, and he rejoices when they are saved, I would think that if his spirit lives in us, and if we are becoming more Christ-like, that we would have the same attitude. So let me ask you this. Are you pursuing lost sinners? Are you seeking after the lost? Are you rejoicing when they come to know Christ? Does your love reflect God's love for you? I fear that this is an element that is missing from many Christians' lives. That we've stopped reflecting the Father's love for lost people. And by lost people here, I mean those that do not know Christ. I fear that for many American Christians, we've altogether given up the pursuit we no longer have a desire to seek the lost sheep or to search for the lost coin. This is is a shame, right? This is too bad because the fact is that we were rescued. We were told to follow him so that we could be fishers of men. A few weeks ago, someone sent me an article from J.D. Greer. And in that article, J.D. Greer actually quotes a guy named John Drescher. He tells a modern-day parable that I think is worth reading at length here. says this, Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes and filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointing committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing. And to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built. Whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of the fish. The nature of the fish. Where to find the fish. The psychological reactions of the fish. And how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. But the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, how loving and kind they were, was enough. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, yet never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? Is one really following if he isn't fishing? Now, I suppose I enjoyed this article in the same way that one might enjoy a root canal, right? Uh, It's not really fun, but it's something that you need to do. And the fact is that I think we need to come to terms with the fact that we are called to be fishers of men, and yet oftentimes we never go fishing. Now, there's a danger here, and it's the same danger that we faced last week. And that is that we could become extraordinarily guilty, right? If there's two things that make Christians feel guilty, it's money and evangelism. And now we're hitting them on back-to-back weeks, right? So I'm just, I'm just going for it. While we're already on the topic, let's just keep going, right? But here's the thing. In the same way that I said about money, I would say this. I don't want you to leave today and be motivated by guilt. I don't want you to think, oh, I should probably fish. No, I want you to have a different motivation. And I want that motivation to be driven by a couple of things here. Because the problem is that guilt will not work long term. You've probably been to uh, conferences or you've heard sermons before on evangelism. And my guess is, I know this has been the case for me, you oftentimes leave feeling guilty. But guilt is not a long term motivator. It may work for a period of time, but not in the long term. Now again, I don't want to diminish, maybe you're feeling guilty because the Spirit's convicting. But guilt is not the motivation. No, the motivation is this, It's, it's number one, understanding the Father's love for us. Listen, if you understand that his love is like the shepherd looking for the sheep, if you understand that his love is like the woman looking for the coin, and if you understand that you are the sheep and you are the coin, then I would think that there would be a great motivation in you to want to love others in the same way. If you know what it means to be rescued, if you've been rescued as a sheep that was wandering or as a coin that was lost, I would think that you would want that for other people. If you understand his love, I would think it would be natural that you would only want other people to know about that love also. Again, if not, we might ask the question, do we really know his love? And so the first motivation, the most important when it comes to evangelism, is we know the Father's love for us. Here's another motivation, is that we see lost people as being truly lost in need of help. Here's the thing, you will not search for something if you don't think it's lost, right? If you don't know that the sheep is missing, you won't go looking for it. If you don't know that the coin is gone, you won't look for it either. And so my question is this, when you look at the people around us, when you walk back to your car today along Broadway here, and you're walking by people, do you see Or when you're at school uh, associating with your kids, um, friends, parents, right? Or when you're out in your community, in your neighborhood, when you look at those people, do you see them and think, oh, they're mostly good people with a slight need of a course correction? Or do you see them as people that are headed towards a cliff and they desperately need the good news of Christ? Listen, if you don't see people as lost, then you won't be sticking your neck out, right? If it's all all they need is a course correction, then you're not going to risk social ostracization for it. You're not going to risk alienation with them if you think they just need a slight course correction. Think of it this way. If you meet a stranger, or if you see a stranger, and on the back of their shirt you see a piece of lint, are you going to go out of your way to remove that lint? Probably not, right? Because it would be weird. Like, hey, can I remove that lint from your back? That would be strange. But if on the other hand... You encounter a stranger, and the back of their shirt is on fire. Are you going to intervene? Yes, right? Of course, if you're a decent, moral human being, you will intervene. Why? Because too much is at stake. Here's the problem, I think. When many of us look at non-Christians, we see a lint problem when it's a fire problem. Right? It's not like, oh, they could just use Christ, and their life would be a little bit better. No, it's that they're careening towards death, and they need Jesus more than anything. Right? One of the motivations we have is that we see lost people as truly being lost. And the reason we, of all people, should know that's true is because we were once lost, and now we've been found. Right? We were once in need of grace, and now we've received it. If anyone should understand the need for lost people to hear about Christ, it should be Christians. If anyone should understand. I will say one other motivation exists, and that's this the joy of people coming to know Christ. When I look back on my life, some of the best moments of my life were moments where my friends or family members or acquaintances decided to live for Jesus. When I got to be a part of that, there is nothing better. To see people come to know Christ, to realize that they were careening towards death and now they've been brought to life, there is nothing better. Yes, there is joy in heaven, but there is joy here too. And the amazing thing is that we get to be a part of that joy. We get to be a part of reflecting the Father's love for the lost. We get to be a part of sinners being rescued. That's the motivation. Listen, it's not guilt. All right? It's not guilt. It's the Father's love for us. It's the recognition that lost people are truly lost. And it's the joy of people coming to know Christ. Those are the motivations. And so my question is, with those motivations, will you then go live out what we're talking about here? Will you be a fisher of men? Will you search for the lost sheep? Will you look for the lost coin? Maybe this week you could ask yourself, what are some things I could do this week to reflect the Father's love for lost people? What are some things that we could do as a family or as a care group to do the same? Now I'll admit, sometimes the task seems so overwhelming that we don't even know where to start. And sometimes I think we're a little intimidated because we think that if we're going to share the gospel, that means that we need to sit down and have a really long conversation. So let me just encourage you, Just start somewhere, even if it's small. Maybe, uh, I guess, later today or tomorrow when it snows. Maybe you go over and ask the neighbor if they need help shoveling the snow. Or maybe you invite your coworker's family over for dinner. Or maybe you write a note to a family member who doesn't know Christ. Or maybe you invite a friend to church. Or maybe you strike up with a conversation with a parent who's sitting next to you at your kid's sporting event. And in that moment, you just look to sow gospel seeds. I think sometimes the reason why we don't talk about Christ is because we think every time we have a conversation, in order to be evangelism, we need to lay out the Romans road. Right? Or we need to be like hiding our Bibles behind our back. We're like, hey, how's it going? Hey, you want to hear the story of Genesis to Revelation? Right? I think that we sometimes get intimidated because we think that's what evangelism looks like. And listen, there may be times where you sit down and you talk about the story of Genesis to Revelation. In fact, that might be necessary at times. And there may be times where you walk through the book of Romans. But lots of times we just need to sow some seed. Right? We need to talk about God's goodness. We just need to mention that we're going to church. Or we need to mention that the difference that God has made in our marriage. Or just other little ways that we can sow seed to point to Christ. That we can sow gospel threads that eventually will make a difference. Right? We just want to look for ways, small things we can do, and small ways we can speak about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so if you're intimidated by this task, if you're thinking, well, I don't even know how to rescue sheep. I don't know how to look for the lost coin. I would just say, start somewhere. Just small things you can do to serve people around you. And as you do it, just make small comments. Not awkward ones, but just things you would normally say about God's goodness, about his grace, about how he's making a difference in your life. Ask someone, hey, can I pray for you? If someone has an issue, just ask, hey, would you mind if I just pray? And then don't pray a super long, flowery prayer. Don't spend two hours praying. Just pray for 30 seconds. But look for small ways that you can advance the gospel. Listen, it's true that ultimately God is the one who rescues the sheep. But what's really amazing is that sometimes we get to help. We get to be a part of it. He chooses to use us to bring back the sheep. He chooses to use us to find the lost coin. Listen, I'm sure... The shepherd was happy to find the sheep. And I have no doubt, because we're told here, that the woman was happy to find the coin. And I can tell you from personal experience, we were very happy to find our $1,500 check. But those things are nothing in comparison to the joy of a sinner being brought back from the jaws of death. Nothing. And the great thing is, if you're a Christian, that's already happened for you. That you've been rescued from the pit of hell. If you're not a Christian, it's not too late. You can be rescued even today. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. And if you are a believer, you can be a part of God's rescue mission. That is amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you rescue lost sheep. We thank you that you care about the lost coins. We know that we are the lost sheep. We know that we are the lost coins. And so we're asking, Father, we are asking that not only would we be appreciative of the fact that you've rescued us, but that we would then live accordingly, that we would live with a worshipful attitude, that we would worship you, but also that we would have a desire to make your love known to others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.